0: ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime All right, great show
1: this week. Really excited about these topics. Joining me will be Jim Atkinson, CEO of Guinness Atkinson Asset Management, who they have blazed a trail within the ETF space. They're behind the first ever mutual fund to ETF conversions. These happened back in March. And since that time, there have been several other mutual fund to ETF conversions from different fund companies. And actually, in uh, June, DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors, they're planning on converting some $25 to $30 billion in mutual funds. But this should be an interesting conversation. We're going to get into all of the mechanics behind converting a mutual fund to an ETF. We'll also discuss Jim's views on how impactful this could be for the ETF industry overall, uh, potential benefits to investors, and then we'll take a quick look at Jim's ETF lineup. It's called Smart ETFs, currently five ETFs altogether. Also joining me this week will be James DeVolis, Portfolio Manager at Horizon Kinetics, who in January, they launched their first ETF. It's called the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. And as it turns out, This is one of the five most successful ETF launches this year, already around $500 million in assets. And I would say the timing of this was probably perfect, just given the growing concerns around inflation. Of course, we saw a a big jump in the consumer price index last week. Everyone knows what's going on with lumber prices right now. We have people putting gasoline into grocery bags. If you're a, a Barron subscriber, You saw that inflation was their big cover story over this past week. And it just seems like this topic is uh, everywhere. So I'll have James spotlight their ETF. And then we'll have a full conversation around how concerned investors should be about inflation at this point. Now, to start this week, I have ETF Stream's Tom Eckett on the line with me from London. Tom is editor of ETF Stream, who's the leading European ETF website. And many of you may know that ETF Stream is now a sister company of ETF.com. So both are under ETFs Capital, who recently acquired ETF.com. And Tom himself has been covering ETFs for a number of years now, actually began his career on the ETF beat for Investment Week. But he covers not only the European ETF landscape, also a plen- uh, plenty of U.S.-focused ETF topics as well. And this should be fun. Tom's going to handle our ETF.com segment this week. Time now for our weekly chat with the
0: experts at ETF.com, the world's leading independent authority on ETFs. I think we're seeing a different way of ETFs being launched. The real kicker was governance, selling a private data. They really let down their customers repeatedly.
1: Tom, a pleasure connecting. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on, Nate. Really good to be here.
1: Okay, so we are going to dive into the European ETF landscape, though I do want to mention to listeners, I know many of you are based in the U.S. I think many of the topics Tom and I are going to cover will absolutely be of interest to you. There are clearly some differences between the two ETF markets, but there are a lot of similarities as well. And I think some interesting points of comparison. Uh, So, Tom, I want to start with a topic that I know you've covered in depth which is ESG ETFs, also a favorite topic of mine. Uh, You've said previously there's an ESG boom underway in Europe, that ESG ETFs are in, quote, takeover mode. So let's start with that, because I feel like here in the U.S., there's a ton of media attention around ESG ETFs, certainly – some larger ETF issuers who are lining up money from big pensions and the like. But I'm not sure I would describe ESG ETFs uh, is booming here. I'm just not seeing that grassroots demand yet. But but talk about ESG ETFs in Europe.
2: Yeah, thanks, Nate. I'd probably say that boom is probably a bit of an understatement compared to what it is in the U.S. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really it's really kicking off right now. And we're seeing this across the board. This is all the way from kind of pension funds, big institutions, they're putting a lot of money into this, especially from uh, firms from like the Nordics. Um, But all the way, this is going all the way through to kind of retail investors and grassroots, as you said. Um, Anecdotally, we've seen advisors and wealth managers, they've been launching funds of ESG ETFs and advisors we speak to a lot is all they seem to be asking, answering questions about is ESG. Um, Just to bring in a couple of stats here, ESG ETFs outpaced non-ESG ETFs in terms of flows last year. They saw... 45 and a half billion euros worth of inflows so the fact that they're outpacing non-ESG ETFs really shows that they're here to stay another interesting point was the fact that they saw inflows during the um, March sell-off last year when you know the European markets saw record outflows but ESG ETFs overall managed to see inflows so it's really something that's here to stay and yeah I just find myself writing about it all the time
1: do do you think there's anything uh, culturally different, like more ingrained in European investors, which is perhaps driving greater interest in ESG ETFs?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose from a European perspective, there's a there's a really big focus on the E, so the environmental side. I know in the US, there's a bit more focus on the S and the social the social impact. So the fact that there's been a huge renewed kind of focus on environmental issues, you know, when you're watching documentaries on Netflix, for example, people like David Attenborough, you know, there's really over the past couple of years, there's been a kind of really renewed focus on the impact that we're having on the planet. And I suppose from a Europe perspective, because we have that focus on the E already, I think naturally that kind of lended itself to, to this big uptake. I'd suppose also Trump's probably had a bit of an impact from your side and his policies—you know—he withdrew from the Paris Agreement, so that might have set the U.S. back a few years. Because the regulatory environment in in the in the in, the, in Europe is really um, is really favourable for ESG. We've just had a big regulation called SFDR come in, um, which is for making ETF issuers really focus down and knuckle down on, um, basically, yeah, um, sectioning their their ESG ETFs into three different categories. Um, But I'd also point out there's a huge divergence in Europe as well, although, you know, there's been a big uptake. You know, the Nordics, places like the Nordics is light years ahead of anywhere else in Europe. And there are big, yeah, there are big differences. So France, for example, is really positive on nuclear from a sustainable perspective, while Germany and the UK is a lot more negative. So there's a lot of nuances in Europe that people should be aware of as well.
1: Is your sense in terms of what's driving this ESG ETF interest, is it investors just wanting to do better for society? Are investors hoping to reduce risk in their portfolio? Are they looking to generate alpha? And I guess on that note of, of, of generating alpha, I mean, how much do you think that hope for outperformance is a factor? Because I know you recently wrote a piece that it sort of questioned whether ESG can actually generate alpha.
2: Yeah, I think we do, we've done a couple of surveys on this, and we've really found that it's 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 changing values and sentiments and trying to have that kind of positive impact on society. I think the way indices are constructed has um, a lot of a lot of them are very light touch ESG, so the underperformance is going to be going to be very is very minimal, or the outperformance the, the tracking error from your from your parent benchmark. But if you want to have a genuine impact, then you should be looking at kind of more deep green products. I know from the on the performance point you know we've we've been writing about this a lot a lot of ETF issuers have said that you don't have to give up performance when investing sustainably Um, but we found that you know over the past decade that ESG ETFs have had a sort of quality factor bias and a sector bias towards the big tech names that have outperformed over the market but obviously after the part over the past couple of months when you know oils come back, back into fashion and financial companies you know ESG strategies have underperformed so by well, investing sustainably, that doesn't mean you're going to outperform in the long run. But what you do, what you will do, is have a positive impact on society, and I think that's the trade-off that investors need to understand. And I think the performance point is actually a kind of mute point when you're investing sustainably.
1: All right. Before we move on here any opinion on the future of ESG ETFs in the US? So you heard me sort of question whether there's really uh, grassroots demand here. I do think there's this thought that, again, Europe is ahead of the curve when it comes to mm-hmm. ESG. Any thoughts I- on what's going to happen here in the US?
2: Yeah, it's sort of the only part of the market where we seem to be ahead of ahead of um, the US. I, swear I From my perspective as a European, as a someone from the UK, I'd, I'd say it's only probably a matter of time before this starts to pick up. I know Sort of anecdotally millennials are much more socially conscious when they're investing and they want to have they don't want to be investing in companies that are having a bad impact on the planet so i suppose when they start getting older and when that sort of generational wealth transition happens then yeah esg will esg will only yeah will start to pick up for sure i mean because there is more of a focus on the s rather than the e like i said then maybe this might take a bit longer But the E will only, yeah, environmental factors will only come into play over the next decade. They, they sort of have to if you look at all the statistics.
1: (laughs) All right, you just gave me the perfect transition because I want to talk Bitcoin exchange traded products. You said ESG may be, you know, one of the only areas where Europe is ahead. I guess I would argue that Europe is ahead when it comes to Bitcoin (laughs) ETPs as well. Uh, There are a number of these now trading on uh, various exchanges across Europe, and you know, look, obviously the SEC has not been comfortable with these products in the US. And I would say judging by the messaging out of the SEC so far under new uh, chair, Gary Gensler, I, I feel like optimism is fading a bit that these products will be approved anytime soon. Uh, but, but I'm curious, what can you tell us about the interest in, in these Bitcoin exchange traded products over in Europe? And I guess any thoughts on how the SEC is handling things here in the US?
2: Mm, yeah, definitely. So on the European side, obviously, it was still seen as a very kind of cuckoo like niche place to be investing in sort of 2017 but over the past couple of years we there's really been a kind of institutional pickup in demand and investors have started investing a lot a lot of money in crypto and you know we've seen a lot of etps being launched especially the more sort of uh, mainstream crypto coins such, such as bitcoin there's a few bitcoin Uh, coins out there, Bitcoin ETPs out there. We've seen one path a billion assets under management earlier this year. So, yeah, it's a space that's developing uh, rapidly. Um, Yeah, more custodians and market makers have entered the market. So it's really seen as a, it's really becoming a kind of safer place to invest than it was a few years ago. I suppose the advantages of buying an ETP over other structures is you get that custodian, you get market makers. It's a structure that investors understand. So there's the real advantage, rather than having to go out and trying to buy a bitcoin on the market, you might lose your key, for example. Um, so yeah, but and then I suppose I suppose there is still regulatory divergence, though, in Europe. You know, the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, they they've now banned crypto ETNs, so you can't sell those to retail investors. But when you look at the Swiss market and even in Germany as well, they've started to allow a lot of yeah a lot of coins to be traded in in the exchange traded product format um on the sec i think it's it's strange that they haven't yet moved yet i haven't been keeping complete tabs on it but i'm surprised that they allow um investors to go into um, products such as gb Um, the grayscale the grayscale bitcoin trust i mean that's charging two and a half percent i think and there's exit fees involved so it's very very hard to trade in and out of when you look at a Bitcoin, Bitcoin ETP, the cheapest one on the European market is 95 bps. And there's no reason why an ETP issuer can't come in and do that in the States. So I don't understand why SEC would, wouldn't allow them to do that. Because if you want exposure to Bitcoin, you're just going to go out and find it in another way as an investor in the States. So I wouldn't, wouldn't understand why they just shouldn't allow it. And then it's safer, you know, and you can understand the product a lot more easily.
1: No, I completely agree. And actually, you know, I think another argument is if you look at some of the other types of ETPs that are trading here in the U.S., I think a case could be made that they're much riskier than, than Bitcoin, or at least every bit as risky as um, Bitcoin, yet they're offered in, in, in exchange-traded product. And I guess on that note, you'd mentioned U.K. regulators banning crypto ETPs for uh, r- retail investors. Have you seen these uh, triple-leveraged individual stock ETFs that trade in London? So there's like a... Uh, a, a triple leverage Tesla ETP. I was looking at that last week. There's an Apple one. Um, do, I, I'm just curious: do those get a, a lot of investor attention? And is there any sort of discussion about, you know, why can those trade over in London, but maybe a, a crypto ETP can't?
2: Yeah, it's like it is comparing apples apples and oranges. But I would say, yeah, they're not they're not really for investors. They're for you know these triple leverage products. They're for traders. They're for people that want to sort of hold a view who have a lot of skill and a lot of experience in financial markets and if they want to get exposure over a, over a couple of days on, on Tesla and really, really back that point, then they should go into it. But, you know, I've had mates in, who have invested in a triple-leverage product before and it hasn't ed, ended well, It just from the daily reset. You really need to understand what you're investing in and if you're holding it for longer than a, than a week, you're likely to be wiped out <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs>
1: all right a a couple of other topics I, I wanted to touch on the first is thematic etfs and I, I know these are having a lot of success over in europe right now i i think that's also the case here in the u.s what what can you tell us about that what's been driving that interest in thematic etfs
2: yeah it's, it, i mean it's huge i mean the promise of long-term returns in these attractive themes has been has really resonated with investors here they see they saw record inflows in 2020 and this is continued in 2021 um, areas such as blockchain, robotics, cloud computing—you know, there's loads of ETFs out there that now um, offer exposure to these mega trends. Clean energy ETFs, in particular, have been um, have been popular. There's been a lot of talk, obviously, about BlackRock's one and the liquidity issues that were there that forced S&P, Dow Jones entities to rebalance its index. There's a, you know, because these thematics are investing in slightly more niche names, there is a. There is a liquidity risk there if inflows do increase over a short period of time. And that's something that investors need to be aware of. And the fact that these products have delivered, you know, sort of double, high double digit sometimes triple digit returns over the past year, you know, that's not going to last forever. But certainly the kind of the long term trend to these themes is definitely here to stay. But I suppose from an investor's point of view, it's, it's trying to pick your moment and trying to work out when when when's a good time to get in these themes, because a lot of them have outperformed Significantly over the past 12 months or so. You,
1: you mentioned liquidity in thematic ETFs, and as I'm sure you're well aware, a big story here in the U.S. is Kathy Wood and, and ARC Invest, and th- there's a lot of discussion around some of the names that ARC owns and whether or not there could be some liquidity issues if investors exited in mass. We haven't seen anything like that. Uh, my personal opinion is those fears uh, may be a bit overblown. You know, ultimately, mm-hmm. it, it's driven by the the demand. Of the investor, if the investor wants to own stocks, they're going to you know pile into the individual stocks or the Ark ETFs, and if they want to sell, they'll they'll, they'll do the opposite. But um, a question I have is just on the topic of of Kathy Wood and Ark: is I understand that investors cannot currently access her strategies in a UCITS ETF format in Europe. Do you do you hear anything from European investors about wanting that exposure? I mean, is Ark a topic of conversation at all?
2: So if you look on sort of blog posts of, of trading platforms then you do see a lot about ark and a lot of questions about how you can get similar exposure to ark. I mean they do ark do run a mutual fund with um with with Nico their parent company um that invests in the same sort of similar I think very similar actually might might be identical stocks as the um, ARKK so you can get exposure but that is through a mutual fund so you don't get the benefits of the you know secondary market or the intraday trading that you do would with ETFs. But yeah, we do, we do see a lot of demand. I think it's mainly from the retail side, our publication, we write for um, professional investors. So a lot of them are probably very skeptical about Cathie Wood and, uh, and the huge performance and the huge inflows that has kind of art- artificially driven up a lot of these small cap stocks, the price of these small cap stocks. So you know, there's a lot of questions around that, But um, yeah, we do see demand, especially from the especially from the retail side. But yeah, it's very anecdotal at the moment. But it would be interesting to see her launch a UCITS vehicle, a UCITS ETF, definitely.
1: Are, are you surprised that they haven't attempted to do that again? Just given the the massive demand they've had here in the U.S. and uh, all of the media attention, that they haven't perhaps attempted to capitalize on that by looking into some other markets.
2: Yeah, definitely, I'm surprised because yeah, the European market, it's it's growing very quickly at the moment and thematics is right at the right at the forefront um as i mentioned it saw record inflows in 2020 it's seen record it's all record q1 in this year so you know you would have thought that arc might have wanted to capitalize on that who knows why they haven't but yeah i suppose they have been very busy <laughs> with launching their space ETFs. so
1: Tom, just a few minutes left. Uh, more broadly speaking, I, I mentioned, obviously, a lot of our listeners are U.S.-based, may not be quite as familiar with the European ETF market. Can, can you just briefly talk about some of the uh, key differences between the U.S. and European ETF markets? Like, what are some of the major differences, in your opinion?
2: So the U.S., it seems like they're kind of set up for an ETF boom. I mean, you, you have that really good tax advantage with capital gains. You you, you just don't have that in um, in Europe. The European market's highly fragmented, so, you know, there's multiple currencies. There's 25-plus exchanges. I think in the States you have three. Um, The fee model, there's a lot of still retrocession fee models in Europe, so that means banks and advisors, they get paid on putting clients into more expensive products. Um, Obviously, that doesn't suit ETFs at all. So there's huge, um, and that's, that's one thing the regulators should be looking at at the moment, because that's an area that really needs to be tackled. So, yeah, the market is highly fragmented. There's a lot of smaller players involved um, scrapping out for sort of smaller assets. Um, it's 80% institutional as well at the moment. The retail segment of the market is growing, but it's only 20%. I know in the States it's more 50-50. Um, so that's another big thing as well. Um, but having said that, you know we're, the market is growing at twenty percent a year. I think it outpaced the US last year. Um, just drop that one in there. So we're up to one point two. Just we're up to one point two trillion euros now. So still growing at a rapid rate. But yeah, there are fragmentation issues. Um, and another one I didn't mention there was a consolidated tape. So retail investors can't see the full liquidity picture of there. Of, of, of the ETF they're buying they could just see it on the LSE for example or if you're a German investor on the Borsa whereas because you have a consolidated tape in the States you can see how much that ETF is trading and that gives investors confidence to buy into ETFs. Um, another big difference I'd mention is the non-transparent um, ETFs that still seems like quite a long way off um, in Europe um, I think the local regulators here so the Central Bank of Ireland are uh, are waiting for iosco the kind of global regulator and ESMA as well to make to make that call um I, it seems like they're sort of waiting to see what what happens in the us um but i would say on the non-transparent point you don't have the um the tax benefit of wrapping your strategy in an etf format so whether whether you know mutual fund managers are actually that interested in launching a kind of active etf that doesn't have to reveal their holdings i'm not too sure Obviously, you do have the intraday trading, which suits, you know, millennials that want to trade on their phones. And you also get that secondary market liquidity on exchange liquidity. But um, I don't think the demand would be quite as high as it would be in the States.
1: Tom, I love that you brought up non-transparent ETFs, because as I think about what we've discussed today, we've covered ESG, Bitcoin, ARK Invest, and Non-Transparent, and I, I think those may be the four most discussed topics in the U.S. ETF market, so I'm glad we uh, we covered them from the European perspective. Uh, again, an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, podcast this week. I, I just find it's always interesting hearing the European ETF uh, per- perspective. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thanks, Nate. Great to be on.
1: That was ETF Streams Tom Eckett. My next guest is Jim Atkinson, CEO of Guinness Atkinson Asset Management, who they were behind the first ever mutual fund to ETF conversions. They made ETF history back in March when they converted two mutual funds. And I should note, Guinness manages the Smart ETFs lineup. So that's the brand under which the converted mutual funds reside. And that ETF lineup overall currently consists of five ETFs, over $50 million in assets. Jim, great connecting. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me, Nate. Great to be here.
1: All right. So there is so much I want to ask you about on these conversions, but I, I have to start. I, I saw on your bio that if you weren't in asset management, <laughs> you would like to be a tugboat operator. You have to tell me more about that before we talk about anything else.
0: All right. No, good. That's a great question. Um, I occasionally get people asking about that. It's kind of fun. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I'm sort of living the life I wanted to live when I was a kid. Um, successful businessman, great family, all that stuff. But I always sort of say to myself, uh, what would a a wholly different life be like? And I said to myself, what is the most – how much different could I have a life than the one I have now? And I just thought, you know, being a a tugboat uh, operator, uh, you know, say in Manhattan for the sake of argument and, you know, just having a whole different lifestyle, you know, getting in fights, being a tough guy, everything that I'm not. Yeah,
1: 180 degrees from uh, asset management, right? Um, All right, right, Jim. So I mentioned at the top, uh, you did make ETF history a couple of months ago by pulling off the first ever mutual fund to ETF conversions. And we are going to go through uh, all all of the mechanics of that here in a moment. But first, I, I just thought it'd be good for listeners to have some context as to why you decided to head down this path. So give us a little bit of background on Guinness Atkinson, the smart ETFs brand, and, and why you did end up pursuing these conversions.
0: Sure. So uh, Guinness-Atkinson is an asset management firm. Uh, we have a sister company in London called Guinness Asset Management. Uh, we've been around formally since uh, 2002, but some of these funds go back farther than that. And the short answer there is it's same people, different corporate entities manage these. Our oldest fund is our China and Hong Kong fund, which, which started back in 1994, and sort of our flagship fund on the on the Guinness Atkinson side is our Global Innovators Fund, which launched in 1998. Um, so we have a nice little family of open and mutual funds. So so why did I decide that we needed to get into the ETF space? Uh, anybody looking at the flows into ETFs and mutual funds can see what's been happening pretty persistently over the last 10, 20 years, and that is people are leaving open end funds. And and taking that money and putting into ETFs. And why are they doing it? it, it it's a simple reason. They're voting with their feet because ETFs are a better uh, product. Um, and I'm sitting here looking at the data, and I know we've got a nice little range of mutual funds. And I'm thinking, you know, having a great mutual fund anymore isn't sufficient. We need we need to be in the ETF space. So so we started by launching our first ETF in the Smart ETF ETFs line back in November of 2019, our Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, which is an EV AV fund. Uh, and, and that got our toe in the water. And then late last year, we launched two more funds. We launched our uh, Sustainable Energy ETF, uh, and then we launched our um, Advertising and Marketing Technology ETF, symbol MRAD, which we, we refer to him as Mr. Ad. Uh, and then all the while, we're working on these two conversions. And my view was pretty simple, um, I started Uh, was thinking, if we don't convert our mutual funds to ETFs, our shareholders are going to do that for us. and Meaning they're going to leave us and go to somebody else's ETF. And and that just did not seem like a good, doing nothing seemed like a very bad business idea.
1: All right. So let's talk about some of the mechanics of the conversions themselves. And I, I thought the best way to do this is, I'll just hand this over to you. I'm going to let you do all of the heavy lifting here. So Take us from beginning to end, just just at a very high level. I mean, how did this process work? What were some of the, the checkpoints or milestones? And, and then I'm sure we'll have some follow-up questions from there.
0: Sure, sure. So we started talking to this about this internally well over two years ago, maybe as far back as three-plus years ago. Um, and I the process started with me sort of coming to the conclusion in my mind that, that we needed to do this. And then it took a while for me to sort of get my colleagues on board. Um and that's because most of my colleagues are in London, and they and they see the world differently than we see it here, uh, and they, they didn't quite get what was going on in, in the U.S. marketplace. But once I showed them the numbers, they were 100% on board, had conversations with um, our attorney, uh, and we actually did some research for about, uh, I'm going to say six months plus, uh, you know, legal research and and some operational research, et cetera. We'll talk about some of those things in a minute. But we sort of formally kicked the process off with a phone call to the Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, I had no idea what they were going to say. We didn't know if they'd be receptive to it. Um, But as it turns out, um, not with the fact that we'd done a lot of research, they had done a lot of research on this point as well. So when we got our first phone call with them, they had questions that we hadn't even thought of. Um, But our general view after that phone call was that uh, if we can find a path to do this, uh, they're not going to stand it away. And in fact, I, I got the impression they were somewhat supportive of it. And, I, and my view is, and this is my opinion, I don't want to speak for them, but that they recognize what we recognize, that, that the ETF is a better mousetrap for investors and investors prefer them. So so, so they had asked us some questions in that first phone call. So we go back and we, we do a bunch of research um, and we come back to them and have a second phone call. And then this process continued over a number of months. We had... Uh, phone call questions, phone call questions, that we had to go research and answer. And um, we finally um, sort of formally kicked the process off by filing some paper with the SEC, which started with a registration statement for the two funds as though they were ETFs, because you've got to have a registration statement, a prospectus, et cetera. Um, and then we had further discussions with them, and we formally filed what's known as uh, an N-14, sort of an information statement and that needs to go to shareholders. But that took a long time to get uh, through the re- re- review process. Um, and once we got that through the review process, we were able to send that to shareholders and um, and then start the actual process of getting it done. In the meantime, we're dealing with a whole series of operational issues in the background. And um, I, I, I've said on a number of occasions, this is the biggest project I've ever undertaken in my career. and And it's because there's so many details that, that touch every single aspect of our business so we would have these phone calls once a week uh, starting about six plus months before the conversion that involved operational people at like five or six different firms and these phone calls would have 30 or 40 people on them and we'd be going through just the most minute details um that are going to be involved in this conversion but but you know you, you don't want to hear about that so from a high level i'll just say what you, you asked what some of the issues were that we had to deal with the biggest one we had to sort out is what do we do with our direct shareholders so most investors nowadays purchase their shares through a broker dealer you know they go to schwab fidelity td ameritrade e-trade etc and and they buy their mutual funds or their etfs um but there are still shareholders particularly in, in these funds go back one of them goes back 12 years and one of them goes back nine years um there are people that buy direct they they invest by filling an application sending in a check and those shareholders Uh, cannot hold their shares at a mutual fund transfer agent after the shares convert to an ETF. So one of the big issues the industry was facing was how do we get around that problem? And this was the number one issue people raised with me when I said we're going to do this conversion. And it took a little research, but we knew when we started the project that we were going to find an answer to that. And indeed we did. And and the answer to that was a corporate transfer agent um, that could handle this. And we, we selected on a company called American Stock Transfer. So any of our shareholders that didn't Ah, uh, transfer their shares to a brokerage account prior to the conversion. Their shares were moved over to American Stock Transfer, um, so it sort of serves as a sub agent for this. Um, anyway, that just gives you an idea. I can I can go into more detail if you want, but I feel like that's
1: well. Well, yeah. Let Let me let me ask you a question on that sure. last point. So, the the first two mutual funds that you converted uh, were the Guinness Atkinson Dividend Builder Fund and the Guinness Atkinson Asia Pacific Dividend Builder Fund. Were those funds selected because? Uh, there were more shareholders that that did not hold those shares direct, and so therefore it helped make that conversion easier? And and were there any other factors in selecting those two funds to convert?
0: Uh, The the smaller size and the limited number of direct shareholders was a consideration, but the the real consideration for me was I just think dividend investing, is its time has come, Um, and these two funds have great little long-term track records. And I just thought if we could give these two funds – uh, a, a, a spotlight as ETFs and, and and get people to understand that these two funds had longer term track records that like were excellent as ETFs that they would be popular ETFs. So so it was sort of a marketing, uh, commercial decision. But but you're right. Part of it was the fact that we had limited number of shareholders uh, that were direct shareholders.
1: And these conversions were non taxable events for shareholders. Correct.
0: Correct. Yeah. We um, we started out with two fundamental bedrock principles, and if we couldn't meet either of these, we weren't going to do it. One was we had to be able to maintain a track record. And two, the, the, the conversions had to be taxable events, uh, non-taxable events for shareholders. Uh, and we achieved both of those.
1: So let, let me ask you this. What happens with any embedded capital gains in positions that were held by the mutual funds? Can those just be washed out in the, uh, ETF creation <laughs> redemption process moving forward? How does that work?
0: Well, they did come over. You're correct. They came over from the, um, open end funds. but yes, you're correct. um, The And I don't know how much detail you want to get into here, but the the tax efficiency that ETFs enjoy it relates entirely to the way the creation and redemption process occurs and the way shares are delivered out uh, when there's a redemption. And yes, over time, we can uh, have those uh, capital gains, I don't want to say eliminated, uh, but but just sort of moved off, uh, in some cases, off the funds books. This isn't the perfect... You know, mechanism, you know, ETFs do have to make capital gains distributions. Uh, They just tend to be significantly lower than open-end funds because of this mechanism. And, um, yeah, these funds will enjoy that.
1: So if I could just restate that, I mean, if you have a low-cost basis position that came over and it was at a significant gain, theoretically, you could hand that over when ETF shares are are redeemed, right, and then therefore minimize any future capital gain distributions. 100% correct. Okay, you,
0: you you've nailed it. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, you explained it much better than
1: I did, <laughs> uh, Jim. From from the very beginning, uh, when this idea of converting mutual funds was just a glimmer in your eye, and you talked a little bit about this in terms of the time frame, but but how long did the entire process take? Like like from idea inception to actual conversion?
0: Two and a half, three years.
1: And and do you feel like moving forward? Because again, you blaze a trail here. That's going to be a much uh, quicker process for other fund companies who may decide it, to pursue yeah, this.
0: It, It already has been. And um, uh, it took a long time for us to get clearance. And I think part of that was, and again, I'm I'm speaking, you know, for myself, I don't know what's going on inside the Security Exchange Commission, but I think they wanted to make sure that the first conversion that happened uh, left a trail that they were very comfortable with. They wanted to make sure the disclosure was 100 percent correct in their minds. And so it did take longer to get the first one done. But we've already seen at least two other firms uh, have conversions, and we know there's more on the way.
1: Yeah, and so now that you've paved the way here, again, I mean, I have seen several other mutual funds convert to ETFs. What do you expect to happen from here just at a, a broader level? I mean, do you think we're going to see an onslaught of conversions now across the space?
0: Um, I do. Um, it's it's very hard for me to speak for the rest of the industry. But if you start with the premise that we did, that ETFs are just a better investment vehicle than mutual funds, um, and shareholders prefer them They're voting with their feet. Uh, if you're in the uh, mutual fund space—you recognize all this. I mean, none of this is is um, opaque, and I believe there will be. Uh, 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 it's going to take a while. There'll be, but I believe there'll be a long process of conversion throughout the industry. I, if if you, you know, truth be told, if you ask me, I would say a decade from now, with some exceptions, most of the industry will have converted, uh, and it'll be very. Uh, much, significantly fewer assets in open-end funds than there are today, and there'll be significantly more assets in ETFs. Now, I say that, I, I can't speak for the rest of the industry, and it should be noted that uh, our business case and our conversion case is relatively simple. We only had one share class for these funds. Um, our distribution model wasn't super complex, but if you take a very large uh, mutual fund complex, let's just say for the sake of argument they have 100 funds and, and eight share classes of each fund, that project is is going to be enormous. And there's a lot of moving parts to making that decision, and it's going to take time. Um, but uh, if you ask me, I think long term, that's exactly what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I think from my perspective, probably the biggest hurdle that's going to have to be jumped over is just that a lot of mutual funds are held in 401k plans, uh, right, defined contribution plans. And so obviously, there are uh, plan administrators or, or platforms that have figured out how to hold ETFs in a four hundred and one k. I mean that's not new. I just wonder how much of a, a hurdle that's going to be for some of these fund companies to to make that jump. I mean there is some back end plumbing that has to be worked out there. I mean do you agree that four hundred and one k plans may be one of the bigger hurdles? Sounds like I this. agree
0: with that. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And um, there's nothing inherent in the operations of a, an ETF that that can't be sorted out. Um, I think. Part of the impediment is none of these plans just wrote their documents to say you can only buy mutual funds. So that has to be changed. But on the operational side, mutual funds tend to be bought in dollar amounts and ETFs tend to be bought in share amounts. And the retirement business is is a dollar amount transaction. So that needs to be thought through. But but, but you're right. We know it can be done because it is being done. Um, Now, is, is every plan able to handle this at the moment? No, they're not. But uh, over time, that that can change. And there's no impediment that is going to keep ETFs um, from replacing mutual funds, in my mind.
1: All right, Jim, a few minutes left. Uh, I mentioned the Smart ETFs lineup overall is currently comprised of five ETFs, including the two mutual funds that converted. And let me just go through these for listeners. So the two uh, funds that converted to ETFs, ETFs are the Smart ETFs Dividend Builder ETF, ticker DIVS, and the Smart ETFs Asia Pacific Dividend Builder ETF, ticker ADIV. And then the three other ETFs you offer, uh, if I have these correct, are Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, ticker MOTO, MOTO, Smart ETF Sustainable Energy Two ETF, ticker SULR, and then the Smart ETFs Advertising and Marketing Technology ETF, ticker MRAD. How do you wanna position the firm moving forward just from a a competitive standpoint? And, And just talk more about what you envision as the overall future of the Smart ETFs brand.
0: Sure. Um, Well, we've sort of hung our hat on four major themes that we see shaping the world over the next uh, rebalance of the century. So that would be innovation. And again, our our Global Innovators Fund, which is on the mutual fund side, has got a track record uh, that goes back to 1998. And uh, Mr. Ad fits into that innovation theme quite well. So innovation, Asia, we just think you can't look at the future and not say that Asia is going to play a large part of it. Um, A third of the world's population lives in Asia, and it's the most rapidly growing region in the world and has been. Uh, social responsibility um, and social governance and, I think, uh, social equity, these are themes that we've seen here in the last uh, few years really come to the fore, and I think that's going to continue. Um, and then our, our final theme is demographics. Um, you know, aging populations, uh, deflation. I know we're more worried about inflation at the moment, but, but the theme of the last uh, – decade and because of where we're at demographically, I think might continue long-term is sort of this uh, disinflationary theme because of the way the demographics shape out. So we think these themes are interconnected um, and, and they're not the only themes there's others, but we sort of think these four themes are what's going to drive uh, the, the, the world's uh, economic uh, progress and the markets over the next uh, 40, 50, 60 years. And um, so we sort of positioned our firm as, as a, uh, Uh, I don't want to say we're just thematic, but we're sort of hanging our hat on these four themes that that I think investors can understand. Um, And what's the future for uh, smart ETFs? Well, we are going to convert more of our Guinness-Atkinson funds into the smart ETFs lineup, and we are going to be launching more. So if you look out, you know, say four or five years, you could see us, for the sake of argument, uh, half a dozen to 20 ETFs. And uh We haven't talked about our investment management style, but we we tend to invest uh, – no, we don't tend to. All of our funds have a limited number of holdings, typically 30 or 35, and equal weight, actively managed, fully transparent.
1: Well, Jim, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, congratulations on making ETF history. Uh, you're going to have a place in the ETF history books. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, as I mentioned, I mean, you have paved the way for what I expect to be a ton of mutual fund conversion. So congratulations on that and everything you're building with a smart ETFs lineup. Thank you for joining me.
0: Uh, well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you for your kind words, and thank you for having me.
1: That was Jim Atkinson, CEO of Guinness Atkinson Asset Management. now joined by James DeBolis, Portfolio Manager at Horizon Kinetics, who back in January, they launched their first ETF. It's called the Inflation Beneficiaries ETF, ticker symbol INFL. This is actively managed, and it's been an absolute success so far, already nearing $500 million in assets. And James is now on the line with me from New York. James, welcome to ETF Prime.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
1: All right, so in hindsight, the timing of this launch was uh, pretty darn good, right? Though perhaps that was all by design on your end. You were just waiting for the right environment, and you uh, certainly got that because one of the biggest concerns on the minds of investors right now is inflation. And I do want to talk more about those inflation concerns in a moment, but let's start with the ETF itself. Walk us through what this holds and what the investment goal is.
3: Sure. So the investment goal is to provide a real rate of return above and beyond CPI, PPI, or any objective measure of inflation. And given the shortcomings of other different parts of the aspects of the financial market, we've concluded that you really need to take equity risk and embrace this opportunity through equity equity markets in order to truly benefit from an inflationary cycle. And one of the shortcomings that we've noticed about companies that you might think otherwise would benefit from inflation is the capital intensity of these businesses. And what I mean by that is the working capital requirements as well as the balance sheet leverage. So this portfolio focuses on what we call hard asset capital light businesses. And what I mean by that is you have exposure to or you benefit directly from these hard inflationary assets, which are tangible, finite, high quality, but with an asset light or capital light business model. So you can still have the scalability, the operating leverage and the high margins, which enables you to withstand inevitable cyclical downturns, but then truly benefit in the cyclical upturn for many years, if not decades.
1: Okay, so if I look at the top holdings right now, I see Texas Pacific Land, Charles River Labs, Prairie Sky Royalty, Franco-Nevada Corp, Deutsche Börse. Talk more about some of these holdings and how they could benefit from an inflationary environment, because I think that really helps crystallize sort of the investment approach for, for investors.
3: Sure. I think if you look at the energy royalty companies with Texas Pacific Land and Prairie Sky. They're both, respectively, some of the largest royalty and landowners in Canada and the U.S., but they spend zero dollars on extracting oil and gas. They have a financial benefit from other companies spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, extracting oil and gas on their land by virtue of the royalty agreement so they are not beholden to these capital expenditure requirements working capital requirements reserve replacement and they can earn anywhere from 70 to 90% gross margins and they don't need to use leverage because they have such high returns so you don't need to make a cyclical directional bet on energy to bet from this capital light royalty business model and we have a very strong secular view on the requirements of energy over the next 50 years as the world uh, transitions. Similarly, with companies like uh, Deutsche Börse, that's a financial exchange based in Germany. And financial exchanges are basically just financial supercomputers that benefit from higher transactional volume across derivatives, equities, all types of different financial products. During an inflationary cycle, you're all but certain to see higher volatility and higher trading volume that flows through the exchange as a de facto toll booth operator, earning higher and higher rates on more volume, and it's very scalable. There's a virtually zero incremental cost to earn that revenue. So the commonality here, not only are they capital light, but they basically need to spend virtually no money as additional, mo- as additional revenue is earned. So the, vari- the variable expense structure goes almost to nil as the businesses ramp up during inflation. And that's really why we love these businesses so much.
1: James, I mentioned that this is an active strategy. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, why not go index based on this? And, and I guess along with that, just talk more about how you are screening for these companies that you believe will be inflation beneficiaries.
3: One of the most important things with any investment strategy, in our opinion, is valuation. And the number one reason why we're adamant that this needs to be an active strategy is we need to apply our valuation framework, where we screen for inflationary end markets that we believe to be very attractive, and then we overlay that with this high-operating leverage capital-like business model. But ultimately, if it doesn't reconcile back to our valuation framework, we have no interest in investing in the company. So to try to index this, either with an equal weighting or a market cap weighting or any other type of rules-based approach, you're inevitably going to be exposed to some of the most highly overvalued businesses within the sector, and we want the ability to basically high-grade for quality and price. The second reason why I think active is so important is that inflationary cycles are very long and nuanced where right now we're seeing a lot of cost pressures on the PPIs, the producer price index. So your raw materials from copper to energy to agriculture, even semiconductors. But as the cycle matures, it might be more consumer oriented as you get into things that are more oriented with consumers as opposed to businesses. So we also want the ability to basically readjust our portfolio weightings as we detect shifts in the inflationary cycle.
1: Okay, so on that note, let's talk more about uh, inflation concerns and and expectations. We did have that CPI print last week that I think it did catch some people off guard, up 4.2% year over year. Uh, I've read that Horizon Kinetics views inflation as the largest threat facing investors right now. Uh,
3: talk, Talk about that. Why is that? I think you can approach it from both a fundamental standpoint looking at exactly how it would impact the businesses on a fundamental basis, but equally importantly from a valuation standpoint. So fundamentally, businesses in the United States and really worldwide have been benefiting from about a 30-year-plus disinflationary cycle where they've had lower input costs in terms of raw materials and lower labor costs and have, a, have benefited from scaling worldwide and outsourcing labor and all of these other types of activities. If we do have an inflationary cycle, it's all but certain to impact their cost of goods sold, but more importantly, their labor as well as their SG&A. So to capitalize these businesses at record high valuations today, despite the profitability and the margin compression potential, should you have all of these input costs hit is is really tricky. And I think that the market is looking at, hey, what businesses have pricing power? Can you push on those costs? But really ignoring the commensurate expenses that would also be affiliated or associated with an inflationary cycle. I think from a valuation standpoint, inflation, even if the Federal Reserve is able to keep a pretty tight lid on the yield curve and keep the yield curve flat, the duration or interest rate sensitivity of the market is probably the highest that we've ever seen it today because there's so many companies that are not profitable today and might not be profitable for years, if not decades, that are have tens of billions, even hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap. And what that means is the further off your reward is, the more sensitive your return is to a higher interest rate. So if inflation ultimately results in a higher cost of capital or a higher discount rate or equity risk premium, it could really be damaging, especially to these ultra high tech, uh, or excuse me, ultra high growth tech and software stocks that have been leading the market for the past three years of rates have fallen again.
1: James, to your last point on duration, is that what potentially makes this time different? And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but If we go back following the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, I feel like everyone was shouting from the rooftops that, hey, we're going to have significant inflation, buy commodities, buy gold. And to me, it it just seems like that's all you heard for four or five years following that. But inflation never really materialized. Now, I I know the Fed support and and, and government stimulus in response to the pandemic, that's been orders of magnitude greater than what we saw following the financial crisis. But... What, what what does make this time different? You, you know, what if the inflation boogeyman n- never
3: appears? The number one factor that is different from 2008, 2009 today is that all of these major commodity markets that are huge input costs, whether it's copper, oil and gas, gold and silver, every one of these businesses, has ba- every one of these industries has basically been in a prolonged downturn or bear market anywhere from 10 to 15 years. So if you go back to the last copper peak as everybody was ramping up for China-related growth going into 0809, or in 2011 when gold was last uh, around 2,000 an ounce, even oil was at 140 in 2008, all of these markets have been starved of capital as there's been essentially no return across all of these industries for, again, anywhere from 10 to 15 years. And these are these industries, you don't just flick a light switch and then have capacity added when demand comes again. There's 10, 15, 20, 30 year lead times, and the capital expenditures to supply this wave of fiscal spending are simply not there. And it's going to take possibly decades to catch up. And so that actually leads into the other thing that I think is very different is that throughout most of the past 30 to 40 years, all of the government response has been monetary in nature. So targeting, targeting interest rates, making the cost of capital lower, promoting investment. The entire developed world is effectively at zero. So the, the benefits and the ability to continue using monetary mechanisms has gone to effectively zero. And that's why you're seeing huge fiscal impetus worldwide, not just here in the U.S. with these new infrastructure policies and spending policies. But that's what truly gets money circulating into the system. That's what ultimately creates wage inflation. And all of these materials-intensive policies are colliding with 10 to 15 years of underinvestment. So that's a very unique dynamic today from past inflationary cycles that I don't think is properly appreciated.
1: Going back to the ETF, in terms of common inflation hedges in a portfolio, I know some investors like to look to TIPS, right? Treasury, inflation-protected securities, commodities can be popular. I mentioned gold earlier. Can, can you just give a quick compare and contrast between INFL and maybe some ETFs in those other areas and, and just talk about INFL in a portfolio?
3: Yes, I, I think one of the main things to understand about the market is if something is very widely known and it's a widely it's a it's a common concern such as inflation the most obvious area for capital to flow to is going to be priced to reflect that and you see that in tips markets tips are giving you a negative gross yield meaning absent inflation you are signing up for a negative yield to maturity so even if you do have a high level a high rate of uh, inflation higher above the implied break even today it's held to maturity, you're going to have a real rate of return that is negative or less than the inflation rate. So I think that it's very difficult to truly benefit. You might be able to limit the damage from owning fixed coupon debt or longer duration debt. And then in the commodity space, I think it's interesting, but one of the problems with owning commodities outright is that there can be prolonged periods of time where you're just sitting storing or holding a commodity with a carrying cost or a rolling cost if you're going to do it physically versus in, in paper futures, whereas the businesses that we own are compounding and generating very high cash flow, which can be distributed or reinvested in the business. So I think the the best way to sum it up is those are kind of binary bets on an end market or on inflation, and quite frankly, we don't necessarily like the terms of trade there, whereas this is a biz- these are businesses that can compound under the status quo but then compound at far higher rates under rising rates of inflation and rising rates of underlying market growth.
1: Well, James, we're going to have to leave it there. Excellent spotlight into this uh, ETF this week. Congratulations on all the success so far. Always love seeing that, especially from a new uh, ETF issuer. But thank you for joining me.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That was James DeVolis, Portfolio Manager at Horizon Kinetics. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by State Street's Matt Bartolini. We're going to go in-depth on sector investing, and then Jason Su, founder and CIO of Reliant Global Advisors, is going to spotlight their quantum China equity ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.